This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Bob Comsick. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Sunday edition of the Best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. Advocates are sounding the alarm about big increases in the amount hospitals are spending on temp agency nurses. It soared by millions at some of Ontario's largest hospitals, grappling with severe staffing shortages, such as Toronto's University Health Network. Many believe it's just a stopgap measure, but one that's not sustainable and could possibly bankrupt the system. Libby checked in with Catherine Hoy, president of the Ontario Nurses Association, Natalie Mara, executive director of the Ontario Health Coalition, and Dr. Michael Warner, medical director of critical care at Toronto's Michael Guerin Hospital. Just to be clear, I mean, the, the nurses themselves are, are highly skilled. In some cases, they're nurses who used to work for us who are now working for agencies, so they have the same skills as hospital kind of hired ICU nurses. They just come through a different pathway via a private company. Okay. And uh, how often have you or have you noticed a big increase in the use of these agency nurses? We have agency nurses working every shift every day in our ICU, far more than we did in the past. We have, uh, I think, 15 to 20% full-time vacancies at our hospital. And, you know, just from a financial perspective, it doesn't make sense for a nurse to work for the hospital because the hourly wage they can get net after the private agency has taken their fee, is much higher than they would get based on a union wage, even if you can't for the vacation pay benefits and pension that they forego by working for an agency. So the, the market forces are driving nurses towards agency work, plus they have more flexibility in that they can book their shifts when they want. And the previous knock against agency work you know, pre-COVID was that it was very difficult for nurses to cobble together an income because there weren't full-time hours available. But now, because we are so short, nurses can get full-time hours, even at one hospital, but for a higher hourly wage, you know, to work around Bill 124 and other constraints within their contract. Now we will bring in Natalie Mara, Executive Director of the Ontario Health Coalition, Catherine Hoy, President of the Ontario Nurses Association. And let's begin with Catherine Hoy. It is going to bankrupt the system when we have Sunnybrook at $8 million and UHN at $7 million, and they still have to go to March 31st for their year end. And that's where they are right now, coming into September. We're in trouble. Natalie Mara, do you agree with the math that we heard uh, from Michael Warner uh, that uh, even after you include vacation and sick days and pension, that it is still more lucrative to work for an agency? Yeah, I think the money is one thing. And obviously, we should all be concerned because, you know, the money that we spend on healthcare is so desperately needed um, to actually provide patient care. But I wanted to add that it's not just emergency departments, which is, a, you know, it is an unprecedented crisis. You know, I've done this for 27 years now, and we have never seen the like of what we're seeing now. But in addition, it's long-term care homes, 
where, you know, I was hearing from the leadership of long-term care homes that at least one not-for-profit long-term care home has lost so many staff to agencies and they can't afford to pay what is price gouging in the middle of a, you know, a global healthcare emergency um, that they are uh, possibly going to go under. I mean, this is, this is across the healthcare system. Uh, the staffing shortage is a crisis. We need government leadership um, to 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 address this crisis. It cannot be done by the providers alone. And where hospitals could obviously band together, refuse to pay predatory pricing, um, you know, we still need to get staff boots on the ground. We need staff to provide the care that Ontarians need. And there is no plan, no plan from the Ontario government uh, to do this. You know, for us, uh, you know, one, the private for-profit staffing agencies are engaging in practices that really are uh, hideous, given the situation. And two, the government has not stepped up to address the crisis in the way that it needs to be addressed, leaving the providers, the hospitals, the long-term care homes, home care, on their own to uh, have to pay just outrageous prices for staff. And I don't think it's just money. I mean, the workload for staff is crushing. And so if you can choose not to work weekends, not to work overnights, make double the amount that you work, uh, that you would make working for your hospital, then, you know, obviously more and more people will quit. And so the, the impact of the agencies on the staff force is corrosive. It's just getting worse and worse. They need to be stopped. Natalie Mara, Executive Director of the Ontario Health Coalition, Catherine Hoy, President of the Ontario Nurses Association, and Dr. Michael Warner, Medical Director of Critical Care at Toronto's Michael Guerin Hospital. This is Zuma Radio's Best to Fight Back. I'm Bob Comsick for Jane Brown. The Ford government has unveiled its plan to stabilize the health care system, which calls for more surgeries at private clinics, but covered by OHIP, as well as moving hospital patients waiting for a long-term care bed to a nursing home not of their choosing until a space becomes available in their preferred choice. The province also intends to spend up to $57.5 million over three years to increase the number of nurse practitioners working in long-term care. For reaction, Libby spoke with Dr. Samir Sinha, Director of Geriatrics at Mount Sinai and Toronto's University Health Network, Doris Greenspoon, CEO of the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario, and Donna Duncan, CEO, Ontario Long-Term Care Association. Certainly one of our takeaways from today's announcement is that there's a recognition that we need to take a system approach to this, and long-term care is a, a part of the system. So in the announcement, we had the Minister of Long-Term Care together with the Minister of Health, uh, which is reassuring that that they're working well together. And we, we do support the government's continued efforts to bring the health system together at such a critical time. There are some good nuggets in there, the enhanced uh, emergency response, the 911 response to help keep people out of hospital, uh, some investments in uh, new behavioral supports for our long-term care homes, some minor capital investments. But overall, um, you know, we appreciate that there are people who are in hospital today who no longer need the level of hospital care. Our challenge is that the average age of an admission from hospital into long-term care is 81. And those individuals have very complex care needs. So they may not need to be in a hospital anymore, but do we have the right 
medical and care uh, clinical supports available in our long-term care homes to ensure a successful admission into long-term care. And health human resources is key. And if this is going to work, the conversations with family members for those individuals who are in hospital and for the individuals themselves are going to be key. But we also have to assure that any admission is a safe admission and that we have the right clinical supports either in the home or have uh, are able to work with local local partners and have local solutions to make sure that, that those individuals will get their care, the care that they need. That's, that's a real challenge. I'm going to bring in Dr. Samir Sinha. I know people were moved beyond without their will during the pandemic. Hi, Dr. Sinha. What's your reaction to that measure? This is a concern. I know that uh, a year ago, I remember the minister calling me and, uh, and other stakeholders saying that they wanted to actually make um, a temporary measure at that time where the province would strip the rights of individuals to choose where they could live. Right now, in our system, when you're leaving hospital, even to a transitional care unit, a reintegration unit, um, some temporary place, you are still consenting to go to that place. Um, what's not clear now with this le- this need for a legislative change is if we are now stripping away that final right that has always been a clear check and balance. And that deeply concerns me. When people get to the place where they want to go, a place that can better meet their needs than a hospital, absolutely. It can be a really positive step. But right now, I'm deeply concerned that when you take away a person's and a family's right to choose where they want to go, and frankly, people often know what's best for them, I'm really worried about what this could fundamentally mean because this is a huge, huge thing that people have to appreciate what this government do- seems do- to be proposing what to do. I'd like to bring in Dr. Doris Greenspoon, who is the uh, CEO of the Registered Nurses Association. So I want to be more hopeful and more, um, unless I'm proven wrong, uh, more uh, have more faith on what all of us are trying to do together. I don't necessarily, and I know Samir and Donna will agree with me, think that it's good for people that already decided to go to a nursing home to stay in a hospital. It's not good for them. Uh, nursing homes provide care that is much more uh, tailored to their needs, uh, much more home-like. Ideally, they should be at home, period, if they can and we need to increase home care resources. Uh, and I don't think, and I am hopeful, that we will never force a person to go that doesn't want to go to a specific home for whatever reasons they have. In relationship to nursing, I will insist on Bill 124. If not, we will be become the bridge for nurses to come and go somewhere else. Doris Greenspoon, CEO of the Registered Nurses Association, Donna Duncan, CEO Ontario Long-Term Care Association, and Dr. Samir Sinha, Director of Geriatrics at Mount Sinai and Toronto's University Health Network. I'm Bob Comsick, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best to Fight Back. Coming up after the break, wait till you hear what's to eat at the X. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Bob Comsick on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Just over two months since suffering a massive defeat in the provincial election, former Ontario Liberal leader Stephen Del Duca has announced he's running for mayor of Vaughan. 
Former NDP leader Andrea Horvath's running for mayor of Hamilton, while John Tory and Patrick Brown also moved on to municipal politics in Toronto and Brampton. Libby talked with the latest defeated provincial politician looking to make the leap. Well, look, the June 2nd election was a, a very tough moment for me personally and professionally, my family as well. It was a very humbling experience. You know, I think we uh, did the very best that we could as a party, putting forward a ton of really great ideas and a great field, our team of candidates, I should say. Uh, the past couple of months, I've taken a lot of time to very carefully and I think um, I'll say methodically think about what I want to do next with my life and, you know, what's important to me and important to my family. And again, uh, very humbly, I've decided to step into this race for Mayor of Vaughan. And I'm excited about the race. My family is excited about the race. And fundamentally for me, Libby, it comes down to a very, very strong passion for serving the public and believing that I have some skills that can actually help improve the quality of life here in Vaughan, a community where I've lived for more than 30 years and a community that I love. Obviously, you're not the only former provincial politician that is making that particular move. Do you think that uh, experience at Queen's Park is is uh, particularly good for going into the new role? I think it can be. Um, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be the case that this is the route that uh, individuals take to get to municipal office. And, and I, you know, I want to level with you here. I, this was not an easy decision for me. I I didn't wake up on June 5th or June 10th and decide that's it. I'm in. I'm going to run for something else. And it's not, uh, I guess, by accident that it's taken me a couple of more than a couple of months to come to this point where I made the decision, the final decision just a few days ago with the support of my family to do this. So I did go back and forth on it because it is a lot to ask of the ones that I love, my wife and my, my daughters, after going through what we went through in June. But there is just a very strong belief I have, in particular because I think the number one issue in Vaughan is traffic and what's happening with our transportation network. Given that I did have the chance to serve as transportation minister for almost four years, I do think I have some experience and some skills that can help. And so that's that's why I've decided to run. And, and I'm going to try to earn it every single step of the way. I'm not taking anything for granted. And again, with a lot of humility, I'm going to try to serve my community. Municipal politics are supposed to be nonpartisan. And even though you can sort of switch and say you're nonpartisan, you are who you are. And that by having uh, you and, and Ms. Horvath and uh, whoever else in municipal jobs that that it injects uh, an unnecessary level of partisanship. What, what do you make of that? Look, I'm running to be mayor in a city that for the last 12 years, our mayor has been Maurizio Bebalacqua. And Maurizio is a dear friend of mine and frankly, a bit of a mentor to me. And for 22 years before he became our mayor, Maurizio was a federal liberal MP in Ottawa on, on behalf of this community. And in your introduction of me today, you talked about John Tory and uh, you know, yes, Andrea Horvath, but there's a long list of conservative NDP liberals, um, Bonnie Crombie, Patrick Brown. Uh, the list goes, Art Eggleton went from being mayor of Toronto to being a federal liberal cabinet minister. We're going to have to agree to disagree about whether or not people who carry a particular party card should be running for municipal office. I think the far more important thing, Libby, is that when you seek office at the local level, you put the partisanship to the side and you actually focus working with everybody in a very collaborative way to deliver outcomes. In my case, it happens to be traffic that I want to tackle. 
Um, but I have conservatives supporting me, obviously liberals supporting me. And there are people who've never held a political party's membership before who are supporting me too. And I think that's the beauty of local politics. Former Ontario Liberal leader, now Vaughn Merrill candidate, Stephen Del Duca. This is Zuma Radio's Best to Fight Back. I'm Bob Comsick for Jane Brown. Well, the CNE's back for the first time since 2019, and as always, there's a big focus on the wild and wacky foods showcased there. Blog TO's new resident food expert, Renee Soon, has tasted them and shared her yum to yuck scale. I can say one thing is I've survived. Kind of. <laughs> How's your tummy today? Oh, geez. I don't know if it's too early to share this uh, with any of your listeners, but if anything, if you are to do something like this, I would space it out over the whole whole uh, exhibition or maybe just concentrate on a couple items and not try to do the 18 that I've done because I will tell you, um, my body is not liking me hold, right now. <laughs> hold it right there. I, I don't think we need any more details. Now, <laughs> The one item that we heard the most about, mm-hmm. uh, or two items, were the mustard and ketchup ice cream on the yum to yuck scale. Um, how did mustard and ketchup ice cream do? I have to say, because I think all of us, having seen pictures of uh, the cones on social media, on any of the previews of the CNE, have really kind of, I think, made opinions about it before even trying it. It looks terrible. It looks like it's going to be something that you would have so much regret over. But when I tasted it, because it was so mild, uh, it really had more of a, if you want to call it a, a neutral vanilla cone flavor, and then just those traces of the condiments. So in terms of eating it, uh, is that uh, it was fine. But I don't really think I would want to dedicate more than three bites to it. It really wasn't absolutely delicious. But because of the young to yup, no, sorry, yum to yuck or the yuck to yum scale, it wasn't completely disgusting. Uh, but, <laughs> so hence the uh, yumish sort of uh, rating. Okay. Um, so what was the best thing you had? Uh, hands down, uh, there were two things. One of them was an item called quaffles, and that was brought to us by Fua Fua, which is known more in, I guess, the restaurant, um, in the restaurant setting for making Japanese souffle pancakes. And they're absolutely delightful and delicious. In this case, they've just taken croissants and griddled it into a waffle shape and then topped it the same way that they would do with their embellished uh, pancakes. And so that was really lovely. Um, is that sweet or savory? It's not too sweet. Uh, and it is, it isn't quite savory. It does have dessert toppings, but it's not, uh, a sugar bomb that you will feel like you're, have the onset of diabetes afterwards. It's actually quite <laughs> delightful, um, and very sophisticated looking. And then the other item, which was savory, was the soulful tater tots, uh, from Get Your Own, uh, Tots. I believe that was the food truck's name. And that, was great because it was real food. Uh, and honestly, when you're just trying everything that's all novelty, having real food makes a big difference. There are other kind of fun Instagrammable uh, items. Some of them actually pretty okay to eat, uh, such as the squid ink stained hot dog. It looks like a squid, a uh, very 
a long corn dog that is a, has a dark batter that's coated in sugar, like a lot of the... Uh, Why would you put sugar on squid? I'm, I'm just asking. <laughs> so it's not really the squid itself. So it is a hot dog in the, in the center. A hot so it's a dog? Corn, it's a corn dog with a hot dog in the center. Why they called it a squid hot dog, or corn dog, sorry, is that they've cut off the, cut up the ends of the hot dog so it resembles the tentacles of a squid. Oh. And then they've stained the corn meal batter uh, with squid ink so it's dark. Um, they've done it in a more Korean sort of uh, coated hot dog style, which uh, if you've ever had those delicious concoctions, they do recommend sprinkling with a little bit of sugar just because there's that contrast of salty well, and I sweet. Was, and so I, I should yeah. try the sugar? I would say because they've already covered it in sugar, you really don't have a choice of whether or not well, you want oh, to Well, the one it. there, but exactly. I mean, I have the regular ones. Yes, I would say. So it's it's uh, it's slightly different. It gives it, it's kind of like salted caramel. Uh-huh. If you've ever had uh, salted caramel, just caramel by itself, and then when you have the little touch of salt, uh, it really does cut through that richness, and it's, it's nice. So I don't know if I would recommend putting sugar in everything, but for a uh, different taste sensation of in that instance, it actually does, does add more than it takes away. Blog TO's new resident food expert, Rennie Soon. I'm Bob Kompsik, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back. Coming up, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back knockout call of the week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Bob Comsick. Fight Back with Libby's Nimer has the most informed guests on the week's hot topics. And we also rely on you for your valued opinions. Here are some of this week's best calls. Andrea in Brampton opposes the government's plans for temporarily moving hospital patients into nursing homes not of their choosing. My husband um, was in a nursing home and died there. I'm sorry pre, to hear that. Pre-COVID. I have a couple of comments about that. If they do that, number one, if they're moved to another nursing home, it's very rare that they get a chance to move back into the family's neighborhood. They're not first on the list to move, so they don't very often get moved. Number two... Um, Nursing homes pre-COVID relied on the families for a lot of other care, such as feeding, Yeah. Um, sometimes even noticing when there was something medically wrong that they missed because they were so short-staffed. So that's number two. I think there's going to be more deaths and illnesses if they put this in. Janet in Toronto shares her family's experience going from a hospital to long-term care. When we um, try to move our mom from a nursing home, from sorry, from a hospital rehab center into a nursing home, we were told that if we resisted, we will be arrested. We had absolutely no choice, and she was sent to a hellhole. And when she arrived there, the director of the of the nursing home greeted us and told us, oh, there's many people here from your country, name of the country. And we never mentioned what country she was from. So they just sent us from one place to a place where there were people from the country we came from, which my mom never wanted to live in that neighborhood. So it was the most cruel thing anyone could have done to a family at such a vulnerable time. Vera and Woodbridge phoned about the charge TELUS wants to add for paying bills by credit card. 
enough is enough. This, this is getting to be too much now. And there are some places that do not take uh, debit cards. You're right. I have a choice to deal with them or not to deal with them. But I always carry a little bit of cash, so I use my cash with them, you know. But why aren't you paying your bills online? I, for years, I refused to because I didn't know how to. But I called the back of the card. They went through with me every step of the way. And I pay everything online now. While Sue in North York has a common sense solution for bill paying. Why aren't more people doing online banking where it doesn't cost you anything? And like with PC, it doesn't cost you anything to use their credit card. You're getting, you know, gifts back in the way of food and stuff. And and what would happen if if TELUS lost a bunch of their customers, if their customers just went somewhere else and they wouldn't be able to do that? There's no way that they need to be gouging people in this day and age after us having two years of COVID, not being able to go anywhere or do anything, and now you're going to go just for more money? It's ridiculous. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week is Ron in Guelph, who called about the retirement surge in Canada. I'm sure you've been in the grocery store, Tim Hortons, whatever, fast food restaurant. Everybody, Home Depot, whatever, everybody is short-staffed, right? Yep. And I, I, I kept asking a couple of my friends of mine who are running companies. And I said, so where did everybody go? He says, Ron, he says... If somebody was over 60, 65, when the pandemic started, they say, that's enough. I don't need it. So a lot of the seniors are just retired and they, um, they're, they've decided, you know what? We're not coming back. And now, um, there's a shortage. Um, uh, young people don't want to work at those kind of jobs. And as I said, there, this is why. I believe anyway that um, why they're so sh- so short-staffed in all these places because a lot of the seniors that were working in these um, other places, grocery stores or whatnot, have, uh, have not come back to their jobs. That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back here on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us from noon to one weekdays or if you have a comment, Email us at fightback at zoomer.ca, follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby, and call our Fightback voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. I'm Bob Comsick, and join us again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fightback. The best of Fightback is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.